This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is We'll Play Till We Die, Journeys Across a Decade of Revolutionary Music in the Muslim World by Mark Levine. We'll Play Till We Die dives into the revolutionary music cultures of the Middle East and the Muslim world before, during, and beyond the waves of resistance that shook the region from Morocco to Pakistan. This sequel to Mark Levine's celebrated heavy metal Islam shows how some of the world's most extreme music not only helped inspire and define region-wide protests, but also exemplifies the beauty and diversity of youth cultures throughout the Islamic world. We'll Play Till We Die by Mark Levine, out now from University of California Press. Learn more at ucpress.edu. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Unions are vehicles for building working-class power. But if you understand that but have never belonged to a union or participated in a union organizing drive, you might not know exactly what being a union member means or what workers have to go through in order to organize one. You might not know that to organize a union in the United States, workers often have to go through hell. As we're seeing right now at companies like Starbucks and Amazon, because labor law is so stacked against workers in favor of bosses, workers have to engage in a kind of covert and then protracted warfare against a vastly more powerful employer just to win union representation at all. And then... Workers have to do it all over again to get a contract. These battles are so bruising that it's a wonder any workers ever successfully unionize. Such David and Goliath fights are so full of so much human drama that you'd think we'd hear more about the workers and organizers waging them more often in popular culture. Another reminder, perhaps, that the culture industry is very much a capitalist one. But in her book, On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union, writer and organizer Daisy Pitkin captures that drama. On the Line is Pitkin's recollection of her first union campaign at an industrial laundry among mostly Latin American immigrant workers in Red State, Arizona in the mid-2000s under the Bush administration. The book is many things and weaves together a lot of different strands, personal memoir, labor history, explainer on how unions work, and expose of just how hard it is to organize a union in the United States of America. Her book captures all the frustrations, individual sacrifices, personal transformations, and occasional triumphs that doing labor organizing entails. Unfortunately for me, but good news for you, Micah Utrecht is guest hosting this interview. It's a really great conversation, and Micah brings his own knowledge of and deep background in the labor movement to the table in a really powerful way. 
Me having guest hosts like Micah and Astra gives you a break from my voice for a week. It also gives me the opportunity to catch up on prepping for future interviews, because these interviews require a lot of prep. I used to have the time to work long, long, long days on this podcast, but then in 2020, I helped start this organizing group in Rhode Island called Reclaim RI that came out of the Bernie campaign in the state. And so the other day, for example, after taking notes on the history of post-war Europe through the present all day, that's the topic of next week's interview, I had to drop what I was doing and head over to the city of Woonsocket to spend three-plus hours knocking on the doors of tenants of a slumlord that were organizing alongside this incredible tenant leader. Anyhow, doing that organizing work all the time makes me a better host, probably a better person, etc., etc., but I can't spend more than 50 hours a week on the podcast these days. Because of all this, the podcast, me paying guest hosts to cover for me, paying everyone else who helps put the show out, everything, it's only possible because listeners like you support The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig. That's the main reason that you should contribute if you can. We do not pay well anything. And so the only way we fund ourselves is because listeners like you decide to contribute. But there is more. All of our excellent weekly newsletters, they're available free to all at thedigradio.com. But if you contribute on Patreon, any amount, even $1 a month, we will send you those newsletters by email. What's more, if you contribute at least $10 a month, we'll send you a book or books in the mail or a dig tote bag or a dig mug. Please take a moment and contribute what you can. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. One more thing. Daisy's audio quality is totally fine, but not quite up to our exacting standards. We had a producer recording her in person, and unfortunately their equipment just straight up malfunctioned. So it's a really remarkable conversation, and I know all of you, especially those of you thinking about and doing organizing work will love it. Okay, here's Daisy Pitkin, interviewed by Micah Utrecht. Daisy Pitkin is the author of On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. She has spent more than 20 years as a community and union organizer and currently works as national field director for Starbucks Workers United. Micah Utrecht is the editor of Jacobin Magazine and the author of two books. He is currently at work on a book of interviews with new leftists who took jobs in industries like steel and auto in order to organize. He recently reviewed Daisy Pitkin's On the Line in the New Republic. Daisy Pitkin, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the details of your book, I want to ask you about its genesis. It's a memoir focused on a union organizing drive that began in Arizona nearly two decades ago in 2003. And you've been an organizer since that time, but clearly there was something about this first union drive that stuck with you. So what was it about that campaign that led you to write a whole book about it? Well, I think a couple things. I think the campaign itself is just epic and is a really good example of 
how hard workers have to fight in order to form unions in the country in this country today. It's a good example of broken labor law. It's a wonderful example, in my opinion, of um, just worker-led bravery on the shop floor and the really the years-long grueling work that it takes to build a union and then to force your employer to recognize that union and bargain a contract with you. But I think also because it was my first campaign, you know, the work of helping to lead that campaign and facilitate and coordinate with those workers really changed me as a person. And so the memoir format of the book, I think, is a way to allow that change to happen on the page in a way that was that's kind of makes it available to me in a new kind of way to think about and experience. Can you run us through the basic details of the campaign? How did you find yourself in this union drive? What was the basic chronology of events? And who were some of the main players in the book? You know, I had been um, doing some kind of worker or labor organizing before I went to work for Unite. I was um, involved with anti-sweatshop work during college and thinking about the conditions under which apparel gets produced around the world. And I went to work for a group called Campaign for Labor Rights that was essentially organizing grassroots activists in the U.S. to support workers overseas who were producing garments that were going to end up in the U.S. So, like, for example, workers organizing in a factory in Guatemala that would make jeans that get sold at uh, Target, something like that. Actually, not something like that, exactly that. I worked on a campaign that was about that. And I worked on a campaign that was about Gap jeans and where they were produced in a factory in Lesotho. And organizing and activating activists across the U.S. to sort of, you know, hand out leaflets in front of Target stores or Gap stores in support of workers elsewhere who were trying to form unions. And that work really felt indirect to me. It was important, but, you know, I would go to malls and stand with groups of activists and hand out leaflets. And there we were sometimes arguing with security guards about how close to the store we could stand or getting kicked out of the mall and having to hand out the leaflets on the sidewalk or something like that. And I think I really wanted to be involved in organizing that felt more direct. I think the book in some ways is an examination of that desire, how problematic it was in the first place. (laughs) I realized that that was a problematic desire that I had as a young white person who's college educated, who really wanted to like feel the heat of a worker fight. Even though I am from, I'm from a working class background and had been working jobs all the way through college, but I, I really wanted to kind of feel the direct heat of a fight think. And I moved to Tucson after living in Washington, D.C. for a couple of years. I moved with my girlfriend at the time because the D.C. became such a crazy place after 9-11. And then anthrax was sent around in the mail and killed some postal workers. And there was a sniper going around shooting people at gas stations and in grocery store parking lots. And D.C. became this really militarized place. I mean, literally there were tanks on corners in our neighborhood. We didn't want to live there anymore. And we knew some really good people doing border action work in the Tucson area around the U.S.-Mexico border. And so we just decided to move to Tucson. 
when we moved there and I, we were both doing some work on kind of border organizing and Unite, this small, scrappy organizing union, was headhunting people who were organized, who had organizing experience or some level of organizing experience to join in this really experimental idea that someone inside that organization had <laughs> about organizing industrial laundry workers in a red city, in a red state, <laughs> where we had 0% density to see if we could start organizing some of the most vulnerable workers in the country in these jobs that are typically invisible. And that's what we set out to do. Um, so I got brought into the campaign through this kind of headhunting project that Unite was doing. At the beginning of the book, there's a scene where an organizing director is interviewing me for the job and is describing to me what the project will be. And we're going to try to organize industrial laundry workers, most of whom are women, most of whom are immigrants from Mexico and Central America, many of whom are undocumented in Phoenix, Arizona. It's like a deep red city in a deep red state in our Pio country. And it just seemed crazy. <laughs> I think when we started, we didn't know if it was possible. We didn't know if we were going to organize a single laundry. But it was exciting anyway. And there are workers who desperately need unions. In my view, of course, anyone who has a boss needs a union. But in industrial laundries, the stakes are really high. And I knew that almost immediately sitting there at the interview, um, which was at a bar, we were drinking a beer, and this organizing director was explaining to me the working conditions inside industrial laundries, the injuries that happen, um, the hot, heavy equipment, the chemical and biohazardous exposure. And it, it felt like a fight that was worth having. You mentioned previously that you wanted to be closer to the heat of struggle. And it sounds like the campaign that you're describing in this deep red state at this time that is an incredibly reactionary one, this immediate post 9-11 moment in America, you couldn't have picked a better campaign to really throw yourself into almost impossible odds and try to grind out a victory at a place where the labor movement had no foothold almost whatsoever at that point. That the stakes were very high. The odds were almost impossible. And we were going to go in and see if we could grind out a win. That's the That was the feeling that I had when I decided to take on the job. And that we, we did win. Um, we won actually quite a lot in Phoenix. We organized 60% of the industry in five years. But it wasn't really because of anything we did, of course. That's not the way organizing campaigns work. It was because the workers themselves were able to had just decided that they were going to stand with each other and stand up for themselves and fight for a more democratic workplace. Now, what you're describing is a, a case that's uniquely difficult, I would say, given all of the things that you were up against. but. From my perspective, many union campaigns involve this kind of uh, almost foolish on paper belief that you as a union with a bunch of scrappy workers, often low paid, experiencing various levels of marginalization in society, 
you somehow believe that you and your ragtag group of workers can throw yourselves at often multi-billion dollar corporations. And despite all of the structural factors that are up against you, which we're going to get into in the rest of this interview, you somehow think that you are, you know, you're, you're crazy enough to think that you just might be able to defeat these people. I mean, this is a narrative that is a classic David and Goliath narrative. I mean, a classic underdog narrative. It's shocking to me that there are not more books like yours that are out there because who, you know, everyone loves this kind of story about going up against a far more powerful adversary and actually toppling them. And that seems to me to be what basically every single union drive is. It's the underdog. It's all of the stories that Americans tend to lean into, right? It's the kind of narrative that we like, but more than believing that we could win, we believed that we should win. We believed that we should be able to win. It shouldn't be so hard. We have on paper, workers have rights. <laughs> they should be able to sign union cards. If the company won't recognize the union, then they have to have an election and they should be able to vote in an environment that's free from intimidation from their employers. And they should be able to vote. And if a majority of them vote for the union, then the company should recognize the union and bargain a contract with them, right? It's such a principled fight that you get to a position where you believe that you should win. <laughs> you should be allowed to win. And that's almost never the case, right? It's almost never the case that it's that easy. And it's certainly not the case in the story that I tell in the book. But I've never worked on a campaign where it was that easy. By this point, most leftists and hopefully all listeners of this podcast understand the necessity of rebuilding the labor movement if we're to have any chance of fighting back against corporate power. But you spend a significant part of the book talking about the deeply personal aspects of union organizing, both its impact on your life and its impact on the lives of the workers you were organizing alongside of. Even in the relatively few books that are written about the labor movement, this isn't usually the author's focus, this personal aspect. So why is it yours? I think for a bunch of reasons. One, because it was such a personally transformative experience for me and for folks that I was working with, the workers themselves, the other organizers on the team. I think fights are often very personal. And I think that the substance of the union that is built around a fight is personal. It's built out of solidarity, which is a substance that's about mutual aid and care for one another. So I didn't know how to write the book without being without writing about it in a very personal way. I think that, you know, in the best of campaigns, what gets created through a fight is a beloved community. And the beloved community of workers becomes a community worth defending. And so eventually, once the beloved community comes into existence, which is a whole series and network of personal interactions and interpersonal care, and once the beloved community comes into being, the fight that you're having with a company becomes like a community defense project. And that's what I saw happening on this campaign and what I really wanted to write about. And you talk in the book about how the way many of these campaigns are described is that you are going to try to wrest some power out of the hands of the boss, out of the corporation, and put that power into workers' hands. But 
in the course of this campaign, you seem to realize that that is not, in fact, what you're doing. In fact, you are building a kind of power that is very distinct from the kind of power that the boss holds, that is the building of that beloved community that you just described, right? As a young organizer, I was trained that the boss has power. And what happens when we organize a union or help workers organize a union is that they build power. And the two kinds of power, they were seared together in the early training that I had. The boss has power and the union's going to, that the workers build will take power away from the boss and then they will have power, the workers. And it became almost immediately evident to me that that's not really what's happening in a union organizing campaign. We don't take power away from the boss. In fact, the kind of power that the boss has is not anything we want anything to do with. We don't want to traffic in that kind of power. It's authoritarian power and we it's not of us or for us. And we can't build that kind of power and exercise that kind of power. The kind of power that gets built by a union is a separate substance altogether. It's a separate entity. It's its own system. And watching that kind of power be built alongside the absolute power of the boss, you know, if you build enough of the kind of power that is solidarity, that is what workers build when they form a union together. If you build enough of that kind of power, you don't need to take power away from the boss because that kind of power just becomes unimportant because you have your own source of drive, your own source of power. So can you talk about some examples from the campaign of what that looked like from the beginning when you're starting dumpster diving uh, at various facilities after hours, trying to find some details to build lists, to making contact with workers and forming a committee and all of that? Can you describe how that took place and how you built that kind of community and that kind of alternative form of power that you're describing? Yeah, so the campaign started in Phoenix when we decided we were going to try to organize three industrial laundries at the same time. And industrial laundries are, they're big places. They're huge warehouses kind of on the outskirts of most major cities and communities across the U.S. They're in every major community. And they're housed in warehouses and they're full of big industrial equipment. We decided that we were going to organize three of them at the same time. Um, And the first phase of that was to build as much information as we could on the laundries that we had decided to target. So we dumpster dove, we um, got license plate numbers, we talked to people who lived in communities where these workers might live to build lists of workers who worked in So the first phase was list building. And we, um, you know, by hook and crook, built lists of all the workers who worked in these three facilities. And we were running kind of a a blitz and labor board strategy. So we knew that we were going to run labor board elections, which is not a necessity, necessity on a union organizing campaign, but that was the strategy that we chose to, to run. And we were running a blitz model. And the blitz is, that you kind of quietly build lists of workers ahead of a weekend when you're going to kick off the campaign publicly. And you've quietly and secretly build an organizing committee of workers who want to do the work that it takes to build a union in their workplace together. And we were able to do that at three separate facilities without getting made. 
which is something I talk about in the book and in union organizing lingo, or at least in the union organizing lingo that I had learned at the time and still use today. That just means that the boss doesn't yet know what you're up to. He doesn't know that there's there are union organizers sniffing around or that there are workers who've decided that they are going to do the work that it takes to build a union inside the workplace because you're doing it quietly. And you do it quietly, of course, because you don't want the boss to know before the workers who've decided to organize are able to talk to all of their coworkers because you know that immediately the company or the boss will start fighting the union. And you want to be able to talk to folks in a space where they haven't yet been intimidated or threatened or um, surveilled or otherwise, you know, bullied by the boss and to see if they want to form a union. So in Phoenix, that's what we did. We built the list quietly. We built organizing committees quietly and then kicked off the campaign on one weekend when we tried to do 500 house calls in 48 hours. Um, it was a massive operation and it was really successful to the facilities. At one of them, we actually were made in the week before the campaign. We were made in the week before the Blitz. That's still the largest non-union laundry in Phoenix today. It's never been organized because the company found out before we were able to talk to the majority of the workers. But the other two facilities, the Blitz went really well. Usually Blitz over the course of a weekend because the main managers of the company, industrial laundries tend to run seven days a week, but even over the weekend, the main managers are away from the plant. So it gives you a little bit of time to try to talk to the majority of workers at their homes. And in both of those facilities, vast majorities signed cards and we held organizing committee meetings on Sunday night before workers had to go back into the factory on Monday morning and confront the hell that was going to be brought down on them, that was brought down on them in Phoenix. And part of this organizing is building a committee of workers who are the sort of central activists in a given workplace. We're fighting for the union there. And one of the members of that committee is Alma, who maybe you can describe, but, but is a central member of the committee and is also the person that you are writing your book to in a second person narrative, right? Alma is the main worker leader at the largest um, healthcare laundry in Phoenix. It was then owned by Sodexo, which, you know, is a multinational French corporation that had industrial laundries all across the U.S., um, they sold most of them off at this point. Um, and her laundry is no longer owned by Sodexo, but it was at that point. And Alma was the first house visit. She's the first industrial laundry worker that I house visited as a new or newbie organizer. And we went to her house because she was the cut. Her husband was the cousin of a shop steward in a laundry facility in California. And we went to her house and sat on her couch and knew very quickly that she was going to be an important leader in the fight in that factory. And she and, and six of her other co-workers formed a, a secret organizing committee before the Blitz and then did, you know, the, the lion's share of the work during the Blitz. They were in cars driving around for 14, 15 hours a day, visiting co-worker after co-worker. And in the case of Alma's laundry, it, it was a blitz like 
you know, I've been an organizer now for 20 years and I've still to this day not been on another blitz that was like that one. It was like wildfire. Workers were signing cards and then getting in the car with us to go to another of their coworkers' houses who would sign cars, who would sign a card. And then that worker would get into the car as well. We were sort of caravanning around with cars full of people finding their coworkers around Phoenix who were all signing union cards. One point we held kind of an impromptu union meeting in the yard of a worker because several of the neighbors worked in the factory also and they all just sort of came over and we held a union meeting right there. Everyone signed union cards. It was um, kind of an incredible experience. What were the conditions that Alma and her coworkers at that facility in particular were experiencing? What was the work like? What were some of the dangers that were inherent to that work? Why did they want to organizing it? organize a union in the first place? Alma worked at a healthcare laundry. There are really two kinds of industrial laundries, um, healthcare facilities that wash linens from hospitals and outpatient surgery centers, that kind of thing. And then hospitality laundries that wash linens from restaurants and hotels. She worked in a healthcare laundry, which comes with its own special kind of hazards. And Alma worked in the soil sort department, which is the first department in the laundry where the soiled linen is coming off of the backs of, you know, 18 wheelers into the factory. There's a person named a dumper called a dumper because that's what they do. They dump the linen onto this conveyor belt. And Alma and her coworkers in this department stand alongside a conveyor belt and sort the linen very quickly as it comes down. Um, like sheets into one bin, rags into another, hospital gowns into another, pillowcases into another, and they're sorting very quickly. You know, these bags, are there are hundreds of pounds of hospital linen compounded that come down this belt. And working very quickly, they come into contact with all the things that you would expect them to come into contact with, with soiled hospital linen. The level of soil on the linen itself, there's puke and feces. There are surgical tools that come wadded up in the linen. There are needle stick injuries that happen in that department frequently. They're, you know, coming into contact with fluids bags that have stuff left over from surgery. Sometimes there are body parts left behind in the linen and they're working very quickly. And the first thing that Alma said to me in, in the first house visit was that they have, she was demonstrating to me how the work happens. You know, Alma speaks only Spanish and I was still learning Spanish at that point. So I, she could tell right away that I was not fluent in Spanish. So a lot of the house call happened in gestures and she was showing me how the, she moves the linen. And I was surprised by how quickly she was moving her hands. She worked 10 hour shifts and she was standing there sort of whipping her hands back and forth. And she told me we work too fast to be safe. And she told me that a coworker of hers just prior to that house visit, I can't remember right now how many days before, but it had, it had just happened in the factory, it had been um, stuck by a surgical needle that was wadded up in one of the sheets and had to go on prophylactic um, antibiotics, which is happens regularly in industrial laundries. Workers get stuck or stabbed with a, you know, a scalpel. And then have to go on, on a round of antibiotics to make sure that they're not going to get some kind of infection from. Industrial laundries are they're huge spaces. And the linen moves from the soil department into the wash department. 
where it's washed in these tunnels often that are as big as school buses, right? And it sort of spins down the tunnel. Jams happen often in the tunnel. And in non-union laundries, it is not infrequent for workers to climb inside the machine to get the jam out. If you're following proper OSHA protocol, there's a whole lockout, tagout, confined space entry um, system that is supposed to be followed, but it takes a long time. The machine has to cool. You have to cut power to it. Someone has to climb inside after the water's been drained. And then you have to plug the machine back in and it has to heat up again. It cuts production drastically. So workers, find they make shortcuts and sometimes climb into the machine while it's still full of hot, leachy soil water. You know. On the other side of the school bus tunnel, the water, the wet linen comes out and has water needs to be extracted before it goes into industrial dryers. And there are different ways in different laundries, different pieces of equipment that extract water. But in Alma's factory at the time, they had these cake compressors. So the linen would be put onto a platform and a kind of weighted saucer be slammed down into the linen to press the water out. And there was a worker during the time of the organizing drive there who had been, his arm had been injured pretty badly in the cake compressor, been smashed in the compressor. After the extractors, the linen gets brought through another kind of series of conveyor belts into industrial dryers. And my book is dedicated to someone named Eliasar Torres Gomez, who died in an industrial dryer in a Cintas facility in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where safety guards had been removed from the conveyor belts to allow production to move much faster. And he got pulled onto the conveyor belt and pulled into the industrial dryer. The door automatically closes and the dryer started, died from severe burns inside the industrial dryer. And after that, there's the clean side <laughs> of the laundry where linens are, they're ironed and folded and then packed to go back on the trucks and brought back to healthcare facilities. A lot of the times the irons are turned fat up fast and hot um, because they need to up production. And so there are people who feed linens into the irons and people who've worked there for years, as most industrial laundry workers do, have burns on their hands and arms. On the other side of the industrial irons are people who are called catchers and they catch the linen coming out the other side to fold it. Sometimes, and I've seen this this happen in industrial laundry facilities in Phoenix, but also elsewhere, the catchers are catching hot linen that comes out of an iron. It's being spit out of an iron. And there is a worker on a campaign in North Carolina who'd been catching for uh, so many years that her fingerprints had been burned off of her fingers. She didn't have fingerprints and was having trouble getting her visa, her work visa renewed because she no longer had fingerprints. These are just some of the, the sort of hazards that workers face um, still today in industrial laundries in every community across the United States. I think one of the most important things about telling the story of industrial laundry workers is that people don't realize that they are, that they exist. <laughs> they don't realize that industrial laundries exist and that they're filled with hundreds of workers who work long shifts in dangerous conditions so that you can have like a cloth napkin and a tablecloth, the restaurant 
a clean gown when you go to the hospital. And assumedly the workers who are risking life and limb to clean your laundry for your restaurant or your hospital are making a living wage, given that the uh, work is very dangerous and potentially hazardous to their health. One would assume that that work would fetch a good wage for them and their families. They do not make a living wage. In fact, right now, today, laundry workers across Phoenix who are organized when my team and I were there in 2003 through 2006 are having a campaign for a living wage. They work for companies that are, most of them are now regional companies that are spread out over California, Nevada, New Mexico, and Arizona. And so there's a whole regional campaign of union industrial laundry workers demanding a living wage. And they're they're coming up against big contract fights that where they're going to, they're seeking a living wage. That's the the main platform of their, of their contract fight. I think a lot of liberals and leftists have a basic understanding that U.S. labor law is broken. This has become a kind of mantra uh, repeated by people who talk about the labor movement. But that idea is a pretty abstract one for most people who aren't actively engaged in a union organizing drive. Your story paints a very vivid picture of exactly how labor law and its brokenness impacts the lives of union organizers and activists and the kind of maddening and heartbreaking injustice of the legal regime for workers who are trying to take collective action at work. Can you talk about how the state of American labor law impacted your organizing? You said earlier that we decided that we were going to run a board strategy on the campaigns there, meaning that we were going to use the National Labor Relations Board, um, which is, you know, a federal agency that was created um, as a mandate by the national by the passage of the National Labor Relations Act, and it's the federal agency that is supposed to defend the rights that are laid out in the National Labor Relations Act. And the National Labor Relations Act was passed in 1935. It's an old law, and over time, it has suffered a kind of death by a thousand cuts. The first cut was a pretty major one that bled out about half of that caused the act to lose about half of its uh, teeth and the rights that it was supposed to be upholding for workers. And that was when the Taft-Hartley Act was passed just 12 years after the National Labor Relations Act, so in 1947. And since 1947, the the other half that had not been gutted by Taft-Hartley has just been slowly sort of hacked at by shifts in the law and by legal precedent that kind of waters down or defangs labor law even further. So the state of labor law in this country is really disastrous for workers. It's so loophole you could drive a bus through. And worker and you know corporations do drive buses through those loopholes all the time today. It's I think one of the things that is surprising to people who don't know much about labor law is, well, maybe two things that are surprising about it. One, how long it takes for anything to get done, right? How long it takes from the time you file for an election till you have an election. How long it takes from the moment you file an unfair labor practice charge to have the charge investigated, have the charge go to complaint if the board investigator finds merit in it. 
and then how long it takes to actually have a hearing in front of an administrative law judge, and then how long it takes to actually get a decision from that administrative law judge, and then what happens if the company doesn't want to comply with the administrative law judge's decision, how long the next step of the process takes. I mean, months, years, we're talking, right? And and that doesn't even include appeals that happen afterwards. So how long it takes for any kind of justice to come about through that system is one of the ways that it's really broken. And the other way it's really broken is the the kind of justice that gets delivered is laughable, (laughs) right? If a company fires a worker leader for leading union organizing, as they did with Alma in the case of this factory, she was fired leading a work stoppage to deliver a petition demanding that the company stop breaking labor law. And they fired her, further breaking labor law. And months and months later, they were ordered to give her her job back, which they did. There was no financial penalty. They don't have to pay any sort of fine for breaking the law. They had to put a letter up in the plant saying, we broke the law in this way by firing Alma and some of her coworkers, and we won't do it again, essentially. And that's it. That's the stiffest penalty, the, the, the greatest justice that can be delivered through this system that we have currently. And it's disastrous. We see it playing out right now in campaign after campaign happening all across the country in multiple sectors, in multiple regions, which is not to say that like the agents at the labor board are bad people or they're doing a bad job. It's the law that they uh, that it is their job to uphold is flimsy and loopholed and in need of an overhaul. (laughs) That labor law almost seems like a principal character in your book's narrative, because so much of the narrative that you're telling is workers and you, the union organizer and other organizers doing everything that you're supposed to do uh, in order to form a union and to, uh, you know, exercise your right to collective action. And every step of the way, the labor law, and its brokenness enters into the narrative prevents you from getting the justice that very clearly you deserve, makes people's lives miserable and makes the union organizing task seem almost impossible time and time again. That's right. And, you know, time is a weapon of the rich. It's a weapon of white collar. It's a white collar weapon. (laughs) The time that it takes is almost worse than the lack of any real penalty because Part of organizing is about momentum and it's about excitement and it's about people being willing to stand up and fight because they see that they have a vision for how things can get better if they do fight. The time that it takes through the labor board process to actually get there, it's really hard to maintain that kind of excitement and momentum and solidarity. There's turnover in industrial laundries like there's in a lot of jobs. And so workers who start, who begin the organizing fight a year later, they still don't have a union. They're still fighting for the union. It's a it's a tool that bosses use to undercut momentum and union organizing drives. And it works really effectively. The picture that you paint of what life was like for these workers is 
one that should be deeply disturbing, not only to anyone who cares about workers' ability to organize a union, but anyone who cares about this country's state of democracy, period. The story is in line with what scholar Elizabeth Anderson has described as boss's rule in the American workplace as, quote, rule by authorities who tell the governed that the rules to which they are subject are none of their business, that they aren't entitled to know about how their government operates, the government being their workplace, uh, that they have no standing to insist that their interests be taken into account in how they are governed, that their rulers are not accountable to them. The American workplace is an authoritarian dictatorship. All basic democratic rights go out the window the moment that we punch the clock. Did the laundry feel like a dictatorship? And how did this impact Alma, you, and the other organizers and workers in the book? I think that's an apt description of what I understood the reality to be inside that factory. I think that the factory was owned by this multi-million dollar corporation. And I think that the corporation itself was shocked and surprised that workers, you know, I think they believed they hired very vulnerable people who would never speak up. And they did that purposefully. And when this group of workers started organizing, I think it shocked the company. And I know that it shocked the sort of local management of the company. I think that the, you know, the company responded right away. They sent in anti-union consultants. They had a video shipped in that they were showing called Little Card, Big Trouble. They held over 200 captive audience meetings in the three weeks between filing for an election and when the election actually took place to scare workers. So there was this sort of corporate apparatus that jumped into action to fight the union. I think the, you know, the local management to me is always kind of a really interesting factor in a campaign. They tend to be people who, in the overall corporation, they don't have a lot of power. They're not the sort of wealthy overlords that are that are reaping all of the profit off of the labor of these workers. They are bosses, certainly, but they aren't the boss. And the kind of middle managers and their reaction to union organizing campaigns seems to me the kind of uh, a piece of evidence in support of the argument that you just quoted. And that is they their reaction to union organizing didn't really have to do with whether or not these workers should make more money or have better health insurance or better personal protective equipment or whether we ought to slow production down so that they can work a little safer. Their reaction didn't have anything to do with that. It had to do with power inside the plant. They are used to having all the power. They don't want workers to have any power. They're in fact shocked that workers believe that they should have any kind of power. And their reaction is sort of like personal and angry and sometimes sad and hurt, but mainly that's a performance, I believe. But it's it's vicious. And it's vicious because it's a question of power. It's a question about democracy and whether or not a workplace ought to be a democracy. And in their minds, it absolutely should not be. They can't comprehend that anyone would believe that it should be. It's a job. You come here, we tell you what to do, we give you some money, you go the fuck home and shut up. <laughs> And that's the way it's supposed to be in American workplaces, right? Um, and the fact that anyone has the gall to think that it ought to be otherwise is shocking to bosses, I think. 
But the flip side of that state of authoritarianism in the American workplace is that unions are offering a kind of fuller citizenship to workers, a level of basic democratic empowerment uh, that allows them to exercise some basic democratic freedoms like freedom of assembly and freedom of speech. A huge part of what you describe throughout the book is the process of transforming a workforce that makes pitifully low wages, is marginalized and oppressed in American society generally because of their immigration status and or limited ability to speak English, and is generally used as a source of exploitation and expected to keep their mouth shut. That group of workers is transformed from being hyper-exploited and marginalized and in the lowest rungs of that workplace hierarchy that you're talking about into something resembling fuller citizens in American society and able to better exercise their basic rights as human beings that all human beings should be entitled to. Uh, do you think of your work in this way as being a kind of democratic empowerment, a kind of citizenship cultivating and building of these workers? Absolutely. I think, you know, from the very first organizing conversations that happen on an organizing campaign, they're really about asking people to imagine a different kind of workplace, asking people to imagine a workplace in which they have some power or some agency and asking them if they believe that, that if they, if they can see themselves as agents of a democracy in the workplace. And, and once people, I think, begin to envision that, and, you know, sometimes it happens in the first house call. Um, especially with someone like Alma or some of the other worker leaders in that factory or in the campaigns in Phoenix, it was sort of immediate. Alma, by the end of that first house call, told me, I know what it means to fight. Um, and she absolutely did. It didn't take her very long to imagine herself as an active agent of a democratic structure inside the workplace. But that's not always the case, right? Sometimes what it takes is getting people to come to a union meeting and seeing themselves in a room with each other outside of work, imagining a different kind of workplace, and then imagining themselves as agents inside that different kind of workplace and the role that they would play, how things could change or would change or ought to change if they had more of a say at work. It's a powerful experience, I think, for, for workers. It was certainly powerful for me to witness and support them through the process of building that those democratic structures and imagining what they can do. Let's talk about the role of the organizer a little bit. So many leftist readings of American labor history emphasize that the weakened state of the American labor movement is not solely the result of the kind of brutal repression and massive wealth and power of capital in the United States that we were just talking about, but also because the labor movement itself repeatedly shoots itself in the foot by organizing in an undemocratic way or by internal union corruption or by different unions fighting each other when they should have been uniting to fight the boss. And I've often felt a bit ambivalent about articulating these critiques because while they may be true, we should probably keep most of our focus zeroed in on the basic fact that bosses are the ones who are principally calling the shots in our society and determining conditions for workers, not corrupt or inept union leaders. The boss is the principal villain in your book, but you also spend a lot of time talking about what's wrong with unions themselves. The union that you're a part of and another union that enters the scene 
uh, end up playing a very important role about the shape of the campaign. So why was that kind of intra-union critique an important focus in the book for you? I think in connection to the discussion we were just having about building a democracy in the workplace, on that campaign, I couldn't help but become sort of fascinated with the practices and the culture of the union that I worked in, the language that we used to describe the union that workers were building, um, the language that we used to describe organizing and the fight and the union itself became really a weird obsession of mine, watching the way different organizers talked about it and the way workers themselves talked about it, the way they were different in different kinds of spaces, because became really important to me to think of my job as an organizer as someone who is kind of aiding in or a sort of conduit through which workers were going to win this fight. And winning the fight meant that they were going to have a more democratic workplace, which meant that they were going to be agents in that democracy. And I think a lot of union organizing campaigns that are heavily led by staff organizers, which I was then and am now, right? staff organizers, still kind of for an offshoot now of the union that I worked for then. But campaigns that tend to be strong-armed or strongly led by staff organizers, I wonder at the end of the day what it means about the shape of the union that workers get to build or that they are building. How much of a, I guess the question is, how much of a democratic structure actually gets built through an exercise that is led by staff organizers? Are we just sort of replacing one sort of authority with another sort of authority in the workplace? Or are workers really building a kind of system in which they are active participants in the shape and scope and tone and color and life of the organization itself? I think that is a real question. It's a real question that organizers ought to ask themselves all the time in the work that they do. We should be thinking about our role on campaigns. I think we like to pretend that we are these sort of perfect conduits through which workers can um, undergo a campaign and build a democracy in their workplace. And more often than not, I think that that's not always the truth. We're not perfect conduits. We're sort of agents in a process, but, but we are humans. We are who we are. And we, the language that we use, the practices that we embrace in organizing end up giving shape to the union that workers build, whether we want them to or not. And as a young organizer, I was not taught or trained to examine those things. And I think we should do more of that in labor organizing. I think staff organizers ought to be looking at ourselves and the power that we have inside the institution, inside the organization, and then ultimately inside the campaign that is being run by workers to build their own democratic workplaces. Yeah, this is my next question about the sense of ambivalence that is present throughout the book at your position as an organizer, which is also related to the critique of union bureaucracy that many leftists have made uh, about the American labor movement over the years. I mean, on the one hand, you're very cognizant in the book that someone like you is very different from workers like Alma. On the other, you obviously do have a very important role to play in a union organizing drive, especially 
given the maddeningly Byzantine and authoritarian nature of labor law that you keep running up against in the book. Workers need an expert like you to guide them through the, this process. They need access to resources like lawyers from the union who can figure out how to wage a legal fight against the boss. Otherwise, they wouldn't stand a chance up against that boss. Uh, do you still feel that kind of ambivalence about the role of union staff like yourself after a multi-decade career in the labor movement? The role of staff organizer is important for all the reasons that you just laid out, right? Workers need access to um, expertise and skill and experience and resources. But I think that the role of staff organizer ought not be to lead the campaign. It has to be to figure out how to democratize the skills and experience and knowledge that we have as quickly as possible. Get all of that into the hands and brains and practices of worker leaders who will organize themselves and their coworkers and the industries in which they work and build power and democratic structures for themselves, right? We have to democratize the skills that we have and then get out of the way so the workers can do the work that they need to do to build their own organizations. You know, I think as a young organizer during the years about which I'm writing the book, I, I found a lot of the questions that I was having about my own role. I didn't know how to how to think about them. I found the role really confusing in some ways. It was so personal, but it was not supposed to be personal, right? It was the stakes were really high, but I was supposed to be divested. The union was certainly an organization that I cared a lot about and sort of in spaces where I was with other staff organizers, we talked about the union as our union, the union that we worked for. When we were with workers, we talked about the union as their union, the union they were building. I think that there's a lot of room for interrogation inside of those spaces and that role that wasn't really happening at that point. And so I think the, the book in some ways was really just me a few years later, trying to do all of that interrogation that I that I wasn't accessing during the years of that campaign. In the last third or so of the book, you spend a lot of time talking about the fallout of the merger between the union that you worked for when the book begins, the Union of Needle Trades, Industrial and Textile Employees, Unite, and another union, the Hotel Employees and Restaurant Employees, H-E-R-E to form the union Unite Here. Messy is probably not strong enough of a word to describe what happened uh, with that merger and in the labor movement generally as a result uh, of that merger, uh, nor what happened to you. And this is an episode that has largely been forgotten in today's labor movement. And even at the time when it happened, it's unlikely that many people beyond those of us who were deeply involved in labor really knew much about it. Can you just quickly lay out the basics of that merger and its subsequent undoing? You know, Unite and HRE merged in a way that I think was surprising to organizers in both organizations. It happened really quickly. The decision for the merger to happen happened kind of on high in both organizations and was announced before almost anyone knew that it was going to occur. And that was certainly my experience with the merger. And we should say, right, that mergers like these have become extremely common within the labor movement in recent years, in part 
or in large part because of labor's weakness, that if you can't grow the labor movement by organizing mass numbers of new workers, at least you can kind of consolidate forces with other unions and hope that that will at least allow you to keep the lights on until uh, that kind of upsurge in organizing happens, right? That's right. And, you know, mergers have never been uncommon in the labor movement. The union that I worked for, Unite, was the product of a previous merger um, between, you know, Act 2 was one of our four mother unions, four, um, our predecessor unions. You can follow the thread all the way back through dozens of mergers from smaller cloakmakers, um, locals, merging with tailors, merging with cutters, merging with in the early sort of garment worker days of the ILGWU, which is the real root of Unite, um, and now the union that I work for, Workers United. So there are there have always been mergers. Mergers are not unheard of in the labor movement by by any means, and for the most part, they tend to go well, or at least they don't get undone, which is what happened in the case of the Unite Here merger. You know, the merger happened, and I think one of the reasons that I'm particularly interested in telling this part of the story in the book is because it was a moment in which I, as an organizer, realized that I was being trained inside a particular organizing culture. I think before that point, the kind of training I was getting, the practices that I was learning and then putting into use on campaigns, it didn't feel like a culture to me. It didn't feel like a particular methodology. It just felt like water and I was a fish swimming through it. I didn't notice it, you know. And then when the merger happened, there was another kind of organizing culture that I was confronted with. And it made me aware that I that we had our own culture inside of Unite. And the clash gave me, and it was a clash, right? I mean, as you say, this was an ugly merger and it ended in an ugly divorce in 2009. I think the merger made me aware of some of the flaws of Unite's organizing culture and method. Um, some of those come up in the story in the book where I had learned to guard myself from workers. We were not meant to be friends with workers. We were not really meant to have any part of our personal lives sort of leak into the organizing work that was seen as really kind of gauche or just unacceptable in Unite's organizing culture. Even though I didn't abide by all of those rules, I certainly did become friends with Alma and a lot of the other workers. In fact, they knew more about me personally than some of the other organizers that I was working with in Unite. Um, I was sort of a, a traitor to that part of the culture. Um, but I didn't notice the how extreme that part of Unite's organizing culture was until I was confronted with HERE's organizing culture, which was almost the opposite, which is, I think, one of the reasons that the merger went so badly. There were other reasons, but I think that's one of the reasons that went so badly, at least on the ground, the, the organizing ground across the country, because HERE organizers, at least the ones that I knew, I don't, I don't think of HERE as a monolith, in any way, there were other kinds of methods that were being used in locals across the country. But the what, the part of it that I was confronted with when HERE organizers came to Phoenix and set up shop to organize hotels was very interpersonal. 
to a degree that I found alarming. People were using personal stories from their lives as a way to leverage um, relationships with workers, to bond with workers in this sort of purposeful, systematic way that felt wrong to me. And part of the book, I think I'm exploring, you know, did it feel wrong to me because the culture that I had learned was opposite to that? Or was it really wrong? Was there something wrong with that um, way of way of organizing? You know, I think the book lands on a little bit of both. <laughs> I think there are flaws in both methods, certainly. As a reader, I was wildly frustrated narratively in that section of the book, because for the first two thirds or so, we're following the blow by blow of the organizing action. And it's impossible for the reader not to be fervently hoping for a victory for these workers. And then right when it seems like we might be rewarded with this win by the underdog, this whole other union enters the scene and the two sides, Unite and HERE, declare war on each other. I was deeply involved in Unite Here at the time that the merger took place. I had gotten involved in the union when I was an undergraduate, and that involvement led me to getting a low-wage retail job as my first job out of college in order to organize a union. And that experience, along with everything else I saw at the Unite Here local, uh, was extremely formative for me. I'm not an organizer anymore, but it helped give me a basic labor-focused worldview, somewhat of the mentality of the organizer in key ways, and an understanding of what it takes to actually make social change happen that's stayed with me for the entirety of my adult life. But then on the other hand, I also had a very disturbing personal experience with the kind of practices that you are describing, which are often called pink sheeting. Uh, the kind of probing that organizers subjected me to, trying to pry deeply personal details out of me to then use that information to get me to do whatever it is that they wanted me to do, definitely felt abusive to me. But being 21 years old and new to the labor movement and astonished at the kind of worker power I was seeing being built around me, I felt pretty awful about what I was subjected to, but I didn't think that there was anything wrong with it. But then the then New York Times labor reporter Stephen Greenhouse wrote a story entitled Some Organizers Protest Their Union's Tactics that exposed some of these practices to the rest of the world. And then at that point, I realized that the problem wasn't with me. The problem was with the union itself. The word uh, cult became pretty unavoidable. And that word comes up repeatedly in your book describing these kinds of practices as cultish. The two most alarming things about these practices to me, and, you know, I'll say that I think that I was confronted with some pretty extreme practitioners of a pretty extreme wing of this method in Phoenix. And the two most alarming things that happened to me were, one, a conversation with one of the HERE organizers who moved to Phoenix when he was sort of grilling me. I didn't know that it was a kind of test, but it absolutely was a kind of test. He was sort of testing my position inside of this method. If I was an adherent to it, if I was going to be able to absorb some of it or take on some of it. And he was asking me why I thought workers organized unions. And I said, yeah, I was sort of caught off guard and I didn't give a very articulate answer, but it was something like, because I want to change conditions at work and build power. And, and, and he said, no. And he said, the reason workers decide to fight to build unions is because they trust you as their leader. And that this 
connects pretty deeply to part of the discussion we were having earlier about workplace democracy and are workers fighting to build a democracy at work? Are they seeing themselves? Is it available to them to imagine being agents in that democracy at work? Or are they following just a, a different kind of authority figure, another kind of leader? And, and they'll do anything that that leader says. This isn't really a democracy. They aren't really agents in their own in their own right. They're just following a leader. And I thought a lot about that um, in the years, you know, after the the sort of narrative end of the book that stuck with me. I thought about it all the time. Why do workers fight for unions? And that he had this response so at the ready, and it was the correct response. It was alarming to me. So that happened. And then I don't want to give away the end of the book, but Alma and I, there's a time in the book where we, our friendship is really ruptured. We become really close with each other and then that's ruptured and it has to do with this merger and the disaster of the merger. And we end up on, on opposite sides of the fight that ensues as a result of the merger. And I walked into the office at one point. I was no longer kind of living and working day to day in Phoenix. I was working on other campaigns, other industrial laundries. But I came back to Phoenix for some contract negotiations at a laundry where we had just won. And I walked into our office and I saw Alma sitting in a circle of organizers that had been brought together to work on hotel organizing under the leadership of this organizer that I was just referencing. And he was asking a bunch of questions and Alma was there along with a worker leader from another laundry that we organized after we won in Alma's factory. And they were sitting side by side and both of them had their heads down and their hands in their laps and they were both crying. And I was so alarmed. I walked in and saw this staff meeting of sorts happening. I didn't know what was going on. And the two of them were crying and I just sat there and wouldn't leave because I was going to witness what was happening. I wanted to bear witness to whatever the hell was going on in there. And the organizer got them all to stand up and go into another space in the office and close the door. And Alma wouldn't even look at me the whole time, wouldn't raise her eyes to make eye contact with me. And, and it was really scary. And that's... Uh, those, like I said, I think those were some of the more extreme practices being carried out by some extreme practitioners of this method. But yeah, it seemed as though some real damage was being done to this union that we had fought tooth and nail to build. And I was pissed about it. I suppose this would be an answer to the question of why should anyone engage in intra-union critique at a time when bosses are so clearly in the driver's seat and hold the power in society overwhelmingly is because these, if these kinds of practices are happening within the labor movement, as you just mentioned, it can destroy everything that you have worked so hard to build and can prevent you from building a, the kind of fighting organization that can actually win. I think that what you said earlier about there not being a lot of books that are that dig into this kind of subject matter in the labor movement, it's true. And one of the reasons is that, you know, we don't want to create texts or documents or literature that bosses can use to message 
anti-union messages or fight against the union. We don't like to air our dirty laundry for that reason, because the stakes are high. The fight is real. Boss's power, the power that corporations have is real. And we have to, um, and I think we've kind of all been led to believe because it's true in some ways that we have to sort of show a united front at all times um, because the work of the labor movement is crucial. On another hand, I don't know how to write about something that I love that is flawed and write only praise. <laughs> I just can't do it. I'm, I don't know that writing only praise about the labor movement, knowing that it's flawed in some ways, does anyone any good. I don't think it makes the labor movement any stronger um, to not point out the flaws and, and dig into them. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. One piece that you might like is Charlotte Rosen's Fighting from Inside, out now in the latest issue. Rosen takes a comprehensive and revealing look at the history of prison litigation, Surveying the successes and failures of legal challenges to the carceral system, from religious freedom lawsuits by black Muslims to court-mandated prison population reduction measures, Rosen recounts the concentrated rollback of prisoners' rights deployed by the state to blunt the weapon prison litigation offered incarcerated people. Rosen writes, quote, as law and order politics ascended nationally, edging out once mainstream support for prisoners and their resistance movements, prison litigation offered a formidable arena for incarcerated people to counter the seemingly inexorable expansion of racialized state repression. Dig listeners take 25% off a yearly print subscription to N Plus One, at nplusonemag.com slash the dig. Enter the dig one word at checkout to get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to 18 years of paywalled essays, reviews, and fiction for less than $3 a month. That's nplusonemag.com slash the dig. Enter the dig. That's just one word. The dig at checkout for that discount. You describe you, your coworkers at the union, and the rank and file worker activists on the union committee as going to war several times in the book. And the conditions that you describe experienced during the union drive seem to support this characterization. But to extend the metaphor a little bit, going to war would make you all soldiers of a kind. And soldiers often come back from war with things like post-traumatic stress disorder. They're traumatized by the things that they've seen. Taking stock of everything that you describe in the book, did you and the other union organizers like you and union activists like Alma have some version of that kind of scarring from throwing everything that you had at the boss as well as this 
very bruising intra-union conflict that you went through? I think a lot of people who were involved in that merger fight as union staff um, left the labor movement. Most of the people that I worked with left the labor movement after that. Um, some of them, like me, are returning to the labor movement in some capacity, but it was traumatizing, deeply scarring. Um, you know, I've talked with a lot of people who worked in Unite, both as organizers, as well as researchers, legal staff, the admin staff during that time, who've read my book and said it was so, it was hard to read. It felt like it was kind of, um, you know, revealing to me this experience that I had tried hard to forget. And I'm sorry to all of you who had that experience with the book. But I, you know, it feels like, I think the, the merger fight and divorce were particularly scarring. But even for organizers and workers who have to go through really hard fights, there's not a lot of time to recoup in the labor movement. <laughs> the fight's never quite over. You kind of roll right into the next fight. And uh, it's exhausting. We don't do a lot of creating space for rest and care. I think we should get better at that. I think for workers too, a lot of the time going through a years long fight to win a union and then to go through a fight to win a contract and then to have to go through a fight to train your bosses and managers how to abide by the contract that you've just won. The fight is never quite over. Um, it's never time to stop expressing the collective power that you have built at work or it will diminish and go away. Like the moment you stop demonstrating the union, it's, it starts to lose its power. It starts to, to diminish. And I think that's, it's hard um, to confront that reality. I think workers often and organizers too, often when you begin a fight, you think that there will be a day at which you sort of win the fight, right? <laughs> and sometimes it ends up that way. Sometimes, you know, there are, of course, victories that happen along the way and they ought to be celebrated. Probably we should do a better job celebrating than we do sometimes. But I think that the, the fight just has to become life because the moment you stop fighting or expressing the power of the union in the workplace, it goes away. And I think, you know, in the book, I use the term war and fight and battle. And um, there's a lot of military language and metaphor. And that's because that's the language that I was taught to use as an organizer. Because, you know, I was taught that the main emotion that has enough power to override the fear that people feel when they're organizing is anger or rage. And those emotions kind of seem readily available when the frame around the whole fight is the, a frame of war. But I think in the book, I sort of ask myself as the narrator to think a little to think harder about that, to think hard about that language and its use of the emotion of rage as a main fuel for a fight. Because I don't think it's sustainable because there isn't really a day on which like you win and you get to go home and just relax and chill out and the workplace will change and you don't have to continue fighting over grievances or getting ready for the next contract or a machine 
breaks or a fire happens and they ask you to work through it and you have to refuse. And there's never a moment at which it's over. You have to continue. And the idea of having a forever war is sort of impossible to think about and unfair to ask. So like, if the fight is a fight that never ends, we have to think about it in a different way. People don't want to fight their entire lives. I think that there are other emotions that are just as strong as anger in getting over fear. And those emotions are not often brought into the frame of the organizing campaign. And they should be. We should be talking about organizing as a form of mutual aid, as a form of care, as a form of community building and defense of the beloved community. Because then suddenly it seems like, oh, what I'm doing with life is not fighting, is not endless war. What I'm doing is building. What I'm doing is it's a creative act of of community life. Well, not to mention that if anger is the principal fuel for the organizing drive, and as we know, the boss is able to drag things out for so long over time, and you're thus forced to keep your level of anger up at very high levels in order to keep fueling the day-to-day work of organizing, then the only people who will stick around for the length of such a fight are people who are addicted to anger, which is not exactly a recipe for a happy and well-rounded human being uh, who is a part of this fight. And if what we're what the labor movement is trying to do is to be a life-giving force that being populated by people who are fueled mostly by anger is not a good way to do that. I think that's right. You know, I think anger certainly has a a place, right? Agitation is an important piece of organizing. People have to be, people are angry. I think workers are angry about the conditions under which they work, the lack of access to health insurance, the authoritarian nature of the workplace. Um, People are generally pissed about that. And we don't want to gloss over the anger because it's there. And there's like a righteous anger that exists that is an important sort of spark to a fight. There's a place for that in the first committee meeting of an organizing drive where people realize that they're pissed and they're pissed about the same stuff. I'm pissed about the same thing that a hundred other people here are pissed about. And there's power in that. And we're going to build an organization that's going to change that thing that we're all pissed about. That's awesome. And it should happen. It should happen in organizing campaigns. But if by like the fifth or sixth committee meeting that you have in an organizing drive, those the tone of those can and should be different. That should be a space where people like have the kids are there and they're, you know, sitting at a table in the corner working on a craft or having a snack and you're bringing food together and there's, you know, a potluck and somebody's cousin's mariachi band is playing and people are like laughing together and joking and they know each other and they trust each other and they care about each other because that's the fuel that's going to get you through the rest of the fight. The principal reason that we need to rebuild the labor movement, as we've mentioned, is is it's, it's absolute essentialness to making a more equal and democratic world. But reading your book, I also felt that a reason to organize your union with your coworkers is that it can entail an experience of radical personal transformation for those who engage in it. 
probably for many of them, the building of the kind of beloved community that you've been talking about is something that they have never experienced in their life before. But to get to that point, you have to push yourself to interact with coworkers in new ways, find courage within yourself to confront the boss who has made your life hell for eons, figure out how to build a common project with people who are very different from you and probably disagree with you on a lot of fundamental issues, overcome it barriers like racial hostility between different kinds of workers and linguistic barriers and boss favoritism and all the other things that come up in a union drive. But if you can manage to pull that off, as you all seem to manage in, the, in parts of this book, you can transform the power relations of your workplace. You can topple the authoritarian dictatorship that you were subjected to. And to me, that's kind of a miracle. That's an incredible human achievement to pull that off. And so to me, it seems like one argument for why one should get involved in the, the labor movement is that through the labor movement, miracles are possible. And I think the, the miracle that is possible, as you said, it's sort of a, it's a personal one, but it's also sort of a public communal one, right? So you see your community change. You see your community grow its capacity to fight to to care for itself and you are changed by watching the capacity of your community change there's like a sort of a cyclical transformation i think that happens between your individual capacity growing your own availability for agency changing and watching that feed into the community and its capacity for change and that stuff can never be taken away. So even if you lose the union fight, even if three years later the union gets decertified, even if you know, even if you don't win the contract that you ought to win, the kind of fair contract that gets you to a living wage, the transformation part can't ever be taken away. And you know, in union uh, organizing drives that I've been involved in both successful ones and ones that we've lost. Worker leaders, their lives tend to change. They divorce abusive partners. They, be, they run for um, local office. They end up being leaders in their church or otherwise in their community. They found community organizations that are kind of mutual aid organizations. They, you know, are on the leaders on the PTO at school, <laughs> they take on other kinds of leadership positions in their community because they understand their own agency in a different kind of way. On that topic, there's one point right about in the middle of the book where you are describing a group of female workers who create a kind of internal organization to help each other with a major issue in their lives that is not taking place on the factory floor, it is the experience of domestic violence at the hands of men. And <laughs> at one point in this story, uh, one of the workers calls the, the phone tree and, and activates the group of women uh, to come to her aid because she's experiencing domestic violence. Uh, and three women showed up at her house with baseball bats. Uh, the abuser had left by that point. But you have this scene uh, right afterwards uh, where you write, quote, speaking to Alma in the second person, as much of the book is written in, quote, but on the way back to your house that night, you were wired, your eyes burnished with the adrenaline of the missed confrontation. You said, 
The company can do what they want with their recognition. We already have our union. And that seems like an incredible example of the kind of miraculous transformations that 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 spring out in all kinds of directions that, that come from that initial experience of organizing at the workplace. That night was, and, and the building of that community was one of the most amazing parts of the years that I spent in Phoenix. I mean, a number of the worker leaders, they didn't even all work at Alma's factory. These are workers that got to know each other across factories in Phoenix because of the organizing fights that they were all helping each other through realized that they were all dealing with some form of domestic violence at home and they didn't want to put up with it anymore. Then they were going to work together to defend each other. They created a kind of phone tree that was in a kind of a rapid response system where if someone was in trouble, they were going to call the phone tree and they were going to show up for each other at their houses or their apartments um, to confront an abuser and, and support each other. And that the phone tree got activated that night and um, Alma called me in the middle of the night and I went to pick her up and, and take her to this woman's house. And I mean, you just read the scene, but there was no confrontation with the abuser that happened that night. But I think Alma's ability to understand that what, what we're doing right now is union. This is union. We'll get to bargain a contract someday with the boss or we won't but we're not going to let anyone fuck with us anymore. And I, I think thinking about union in that way is a really, is a really important moment. I think it was an important moment for me as an organizer. After I wrote a review of your book in the New Republic, I put out a call on Twitter for people who had experienced deeply personal transformations as a result of their involvement in a union drive. I thought I was going to get maybe eight or nine emails, but I received nearly a hundred from people all over the country who wanted to share their stories uh, from a, a wide range of workplaces, ranging from low wage workers to very well paid ones and white collar workers, blue collar workers, workers of all types. And so it seems like it's a widespread phenomenon that people who are involved in union drives find themselves being deeply changed by them in the ways that you've just described. I think the authoritarian nature of the workplace is it's real in that there the boss has power and workers generally do not have any power. There is a true authoritarian structure, but there's also a, a way in which it's kind of a performance or a, a, a dream and people can kind of wake up from it or at least wake up from the feeling that this is how it, it ought to be or has to be or will always be. And once you wake up from that, you can't you can't go back to the way it was before. I think of you know union organizing in much that way. I think the stakes are high. It's important to win campaigns because workers are putting a lot at risk when they organize. But even in the even in the cases where you lose, you have a whole group of people who have decided that it's not necessarily an inherent fact of work that you have to go to work in an in an authoritarian regime and no matter where they work if they continue at that workplace or they go to work at another place they're going to carry that with them so the more organizing we do across the country the more people there will will be who don't just take it as a given 
that work means that you're giving up any sort of autonomy, any sort of notion of a democratic self or society. So you are now the head of organizing for the Starbucks Workers United campaign. And it seems to me that this campaign is now experiencing a level of boss pushback that is, on the one hand, very distinct from the kind of union busting that you experienced and that you write about in On the Line. Obviously, the demographics of the workforce are pretty different. But on the other hand, that union busting effort really doesn't feel all that different from what you experienced and what you wrote about in your book. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, but it's a vicious fight. They're doing the same, they're pulling the same, you know, from the same playbook as laundry bosses, as textile bosses, as hotel bosses, as, I mean, it's a nasty fight. They're threatening to close stores. They're closing stores that they unionize. They're firing worker leaders. But at last count, which is about 24 hours ago, there were 112 union leaders who have been fired in this campaign across the country. It's, uh, you know, Howard Schultz, the interim returning CEO of the company, said on national television in an interview, do you think that you will ever be, be able to, I forget the exact question, so I shouldn't try to quote it. But essentially said that he was never he never saw a future for Starbucks in which he was going to recognize and deal with the union. <laughs> um, I mean, from the top down, the culture of the company is just ferociously, ferociously anti-union. Um, it's an ugly fight. And these workers are really in the fight of their lives for a contract right now. And this is Howard Schultz, who I always like to re remind people was floated as a possible candidate for labor secretary uh, under Hillary Clinton if she had won in 2016. The the boss is drawing out this fight. It seems like Starbucks' strategy may be to just act in open defiance of established labor law, desiccated though it is, weakened though it is, pro-boss though it is. It's clear that workers should be at this point having organized unions in hundreds of stores across the country at this point, be able to negotiate a contract. Uh, and yet the corporation is standing in open defiance of that. And you hear from someone like Howard Schultz, his willingness to kind of openly flaunt that labor law. Starbucks seems to really be drawing out this fight and trying to exhaust workers. What's your experience been in trying to maintain that sense of the new community that the beloved community that we have been talking about uh to create a real alternative to the authoritarian dictatorship of the workplace have you been able to maintain that despite being up against in a very large and important global corporation that is throwing everything that it has at you look this campaign continues to grow every day miraculously in the face of threats and bribes, I mean, they're, they are, you know, saying that they will give new benefits and pay raises to stores only if they don't unionize or even begin the process of unionization. They're firing people, they're closing stores, and the campaign continues to grow. Still, every week, workers at new stores file to have union elections. 
They've won union elections at over 240 stores. So there are about 6,200 unions, unionized Starbucks workers across the country now in 33 states. Um, there are about 100 more stores that have filed for union election. So it continues to grow even in the face of this vicious anti-union campaign. And part of that is because this campaign really is different from any campaign that I've supported before. And really, that's the way I feel about it at this point. I'm the national field director of the campaign, and I have the great fortune of being able to support these workers in building their union. And on the ground, that's really the way it feels. That's the way workers relate to the campaign. That's the way they talk about the campaign. They are learning the skills to organize themselves, and then they help other Starbucks workers organize their stores. It's the most worker-led, worker-driven campaign I've ever worked on. One of the interesting things about Starbucks and these workers and the stores that they work in is that you know, because Starbucks offers itself up to the public as this progressive corporation with this great benefits package, which by the way, most workers cannot access. And, and they have as part of their healthcare package, if you are lucky enough to get enough hours for enough weeks in a row to be able to access it, part of the package is gender affirming surgery. They become these spaces inside communities where there are a ton of queer workers and trans folks working there. And because of that, in lots of stores across the country, the beloved community already exists. These workers, they all know each other. They talk to each other. They're really closely connected. They're very good friends. So from the beginning of the campaign, it's already sort of a community defense project. And that's one of the reasons that the campaign's been able to spread so quickly across the country because the beloved community already exists in store after store after store. You know, one of the first anti-union tactics that the company employed was to cut hours to drive people out of the stores to disrupt that community because they realize that's what's going on, that these people are so close knit and there's such a tight community with each other. It's going to be easy for them to organize and unionize and stand up for each other and stick together even through captive audience meetings and firings and threats and bribes and all of the stuff that the company is throwing at them. You know, I think the company's theory on the campaign is just, as you'd say, they're going to continue to violate the law to try to scare workers, to try to kill the momentum of the movement that they that they are building. And I think they are trying to kill momentum so that they can wait out the certification year. And then they're going to actively try to run decertification petitions and elections at store after store after store. And, you know, the workers themselves are very well aware of this. They talk about it all the time. They're very aware of the necessity to keep the union inside their stores as strong as possible, even as they're working to organize new stores. There's kind of a duality to the project at all times. Keep the union strong in your own store, keep the union healthy in your own store, and organize as many other stores as you can moving forward, because that's they know that that's how they're going to win. Continue organizing and stay strong. 
Your book is a personal memoir about union organizing, but there is a thread that is very present that you go into in pretty great detail throughout the book about labor history in the United States. You have a, some very extended sections on the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, and this is a part of uh, the history of your union at the time. Uh, and it is important to tell that story, not only because labor history is not something that many people are aware of in this country or taught of in schools, but also it's clear that the kind of horrifying details that are part of something like the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, in which over 100 workers burned to death or jumped out the window of their eighth floor factory in New York City is because that is not history in the sense that it is over. The workers that you're describing organizing in the book are dealing with just new versions of this same system that treats their bodies like as totally dispensable as they can be just tossed into a meat grinder and spit out. And so in some ways you're continuing that fight uh, that established your predecessor union through fights like the strikes that were happening around the time of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire that took place in the beginning of the 21st century in Arizona. And it seems to me is continuing to take place at workplaces like Starbucks today. There's a sort of uh, unbroken chain of labor history uh, that is still being written in this country and around the world that you and the workers in the book and the Starbucks workers who you're organizing now are a part of. Do you feel like that? Is that an accurate description of, of, uh, of your work and, and your its place in the broader scope of American labor history? As a union organizer in Unite, part of my job was to connect workers with the history of the union. I think unions really like to kind of create their own lore and mythology, and it's important to their identity and their sort of sense of importance, um, of the organization's importance and longevity. And so I was taught as a young organizer to tell the story of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. And I told it so many times that it wasn't this thing that had happened a hundred years ago, sort of like a, a live artifact that was very much part of the present day organizing campaign. I write in the book that I always have had a hard time telling that story and not being really emotionally moved by it. Um, I, I never quite had the talent of standing up in front of a bunch of people and telling the story in sort of a cool remove. It it hurts me to talk about it. I I get, you probably hear my voice now, I get really emotional every time I think about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. But I wondered at the time that I wrote the book, and some sometimes when I was telling the story in front of groups of laundry workers, what does it mean that I'm telling this story in this way? What does it mean that I'm telling the story of the uprising of the 20,000, which is another sort of um, really formative event in the ILGWU that Clara Lemlich got hoisted up onto a stage in Cooper Union and called for a general strike. She was this anonymous wisp of a girl. And the next day, 15,000 people followed her into the street. What does it mean to tell stories of like 
absolute tragedy and absolute heroics in that way in front of a group of workers who are trying to decide whether or not they're going to try to form a union. And it was trouble. It was like a puzzle to me. I couldn't figure out what it was supposed to mean. Like, was it supposed to be inspiring to workers in the room to say, a hundred years ago, this young woman who was an immigrant stood up on the stage and people followed her into the street in this general strike. I don't, I don't think it came off that way. I don't think it ever had that effect. It wasn't inspiring in that workers thought I could do that. Tomorrow I could stand up on a stage and call for a general strike and people will follow me to the streets. In fact, I thought it did a real disservice to the labor movement to tell the story in that way, decontextualized from the very hard work of organizing in which Clara Lemlich was deeply involved, right? She had already, she'd been organizing for years and had already built strike committees at hundreds of garment factories across New York City. Everyone in that damn hall knew who she was when she stood up on the stage to call for this general strike. And they knew she was going to call for a strike. That's why they came to the meeting and telling the story that decontextualizes all of that tough work of organizing. I, I didn't understand the purpose of it. So here I am now, years later, helping to lead this organizing on the Starbucks campaign and at meetings, initial meetings of workers, telling them about Workers United, which is an offshoot of the ILGWU. I find myself again in spaces where I'm telling the story of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire <laughs> because it's what the, the root of the union that these workers are joining. So many Starbucks workers across the country have now heard the story of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. You know, when I was telling the story to laundry workers, it had one kind of resonance to me. And that is, you know, industrial laundries in the United States are really weird in that they have a soil sort department, which is where Alma worked. They have a place where workers have to deal with, with their bodies, the soiled linen that's coming in. In a lot of other parts in the world, that's not true. Industrial laundries, the linen comes in and goes right into the washing machine. And then they have a clean sort. So the linen doesn't get sorted until it's clean and much healthier, safer for workers to be handling. But of course, that's a lot harder on the washing machine because of all the crap in the linen, how tightly it's wadded together, the leftover surgical instruments in it. It takes a toll on the machines and the machines have to be replaced much more frequently. Here in the United States, we put that burden on the bodies of workers. The bodies of workers are supposed to absorb um, that hazard and protect the machines from it. So in that way, telling the story of the Triangle Fire resonated to me in terms of the absolute danger that workers face on a day-to-day -day basis. There are a lot of workplace injuries that happen inside Starbucks stores that I think people don't think a lot about. There are a lot of repetitive motion injuries. There are slip and fall injuries or burns that happen. Um, but the part of the story now that really um, feels resonant to me on this campaign is that the, the uprising of the 20,000, the way the union that I work for was actually formed you know, in the early part of last century was that a lot of young people, many of them women, a lot of them teenagers, and in their early 20s, started organizing shop by small shop across the city 
And they realized that if they were ever going to improve conditions in the industry, they had to strike. They had to strike together. And the only way that they won that strike was by a, a massive amount of community solidarity and consumer, customer solidarity. The women who who bought and wore those shirtwaists, which were just blouses, right? The fashionable blouse of the day, had to show up on the picket line and support those workers. And now here we are, you know, 117 years later, and we have young people organizing shop by small shop all across the country. And what it's going to take to win is a hell of a lot of pickets and a hell of a lot of community support. <laughs> Daisy Pitkin, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Micah. Good talking with you. Daisy Pitkin is the author of On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. She has spent more than 20 years as a community and union organizer and currently works as national field director for Starbucks Workers United. Micah Utrecht is the editor of Jacobin Magazine and the author of two books. He's currently working on another book of interviews with new leftists who took jobs in industries like steel and auto in order to organize. Recently, he reviewed Pitkin's On the Line in The New Republic. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the degree of profit is only settled by the continuous struggle between capital and labor, the capitalist constantly tending to reduce wages to their physical minimum and to extend the working day to its physical maximum, while the working man constantly presses in the opposite direction. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theo Riofrancos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it is on iTunes or wherever, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But more than that, what introduces us to new listeners is you telling people that you know, or on Twitter or whatever, people you don't necessarily know. Anyhow, people, you telling people that they should listen to this podcast and why you like listening to the podcast and thus why they will likely like it too. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks a month is huge. (laughs) 